This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Our worship continues with the public reading and study of the Word of God. Our readings appointed for this Sunday. Hear the Word of God from the second book of Moses, Exodus chapter 34, beginning at verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And now on to verse 29. Now it was so... When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had said and spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. The second reading is taken from the letter of 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, from verse 17 through to chapter 4, verse 4. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. 
but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I know I told you to sit down, but I need you to stand up again. I know, sit down, stand up, it's like an Anglican gym class. But it is a tradition that when you hear the king speak, and in the presence of a king, you stand. We hear the words of our king speak through the gospel of, Moses, of Matthew. Brothers and sisters, the good news according to Matthew. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that uh, the words of Scripture and the life of your Son, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, will indeed convict us and encourage us, challenge us. We ask that uh, you would come by the power of the Holy Spirit into this place. And again, we pray this for the sake of Jesus and for the glory of his uh, rule and reign amongst us in this place and throughout all the world. Amen. So I would like to um, just, in a way, complete, I think, what we've been talking about for the last two weeks, two weeks ago, we began, we began uh, to think about the Sermon on the Mount, which led us, of course, from the Beatitudes and, and uh, the teaching of Jesus and his interpretation or understanding what the kingdom of heaven uh, is comprised of, how he understands the relationship between God's law 
and the kingdom of heaven and truly how all of this is connected to holiness, the imitation, the imitation of God. And uh, today we uh, come uh, to something that doesn't seem related or connected at all, but I, I indeed uh, actually believe it is, and I hope we can make uh, the case uh, for that argument. We are uh, liturgically, uh, the, uh, in the last Sunday before Lent, and every year uh, as a liturgical church, we think about, we read the story of the Transfiguration. Now this, the Transfiguration, of course, uh, is important liturgically, or surely it's important uh, transition uh, in, for the life of Jesus, because it's from the Transfiguration that Jesus begins to talk, actually just a little bit before, but he begins to talk about uh, his need, or that he must, I think the word must there is very important, he must <clears throat> go to Jerusalem, he must be crucified, and he will be raised from the dead. So for Jesus, it's, it's, it's extremely important, and I think for Jesus, it also is God's way of assuring him, yes, that in the face of death, he will not be left to rot in the grave. But then we can ask the question, well, what does this have to do with us? Because it is something uh, of a strange event. It does raise many questions. Sometimes uh, there are more questions about uh, the transfiguration um, than there are answers. What does this mean for me? And I hope that we can uh, make the point that uh, just as, just as at Christmas, when we celebrate the Incarnation, when Jesus comes uh, and takes on human flesh and lives our, our life, that at the Transfiguration, what this means for us is that we're invited to also to live his life and to participate in his life. And I think all of this, in part, hinges on glory. You know, you, the, all three uh, passages that we read today from Scripture has something to do uh, with glory. And we use the phrase a lot, yes, glory this, glory that, I'm working for the glory of God. Uh, I like Pentecostals because they, they shout glory uh, when uh, God does things. And it would be, a, I think, an important question to ask, so what is glory? What is this? I mean, these terms sometimes can be so abstract that they don't mean very much, yes? I mean, so we don't think about what uh, terminology or words in scripture mean, uh, not that we can always define things very exactly, but we can get a pretty good general idea. But glory is probably best defined, and this is where we connect with the previous two weeks, Glory is best defined as God's holiness made visible. That God's character we can see in some tangible, concrete way. And as you may remember, um, holiness, of course, is the number one over 
overwhelming, you, you might say, characteristic. Yes, it's the, the number one way in which we define who God is. God is holy, and sometimes the scriptures calls him a, devour, a devouring fire, a fire that eats. And you see that, I think we see it really well in the story of Moses, do we not? Uh, the story of the mountain. God invites Israel to Sinai. And before uh, he begins to speak and to reveal himself, he tells Israel, because you're going to encounter me, you need to purify yourself. You need to, you need to make yourself ready. And you also need to put restrictions on the mountain itself. People don't let anyone come you know, approach the mountain. And of course, if people of Israel are so afraid, they say to Moses, we can't take it. This is overwhelming us. You go up and find out what the Almighty wants. And then, of course, this is something that uh, carries through uh, throughout most of the book of Exodus. Moses goes up and down uh, a number of times. And you may remember we the story uh, of the golden calf, because he's up there so long that uh, people uh, in their anxiety or in their fear begin to worship something else or turn uh, their focus um, or turn their fear uh, towards uh, uh, this uh, or look for a solution for their fear and worry uh, in the golden calf. And Moses uh, on the mountain, and we won't recount uh, all of the story, but Moses on the mountain, yes, uh, wants to see God's glory. And in chapter 33, God, Moses says, I want to see your glory. And you know what God says? He says, I'm going to show you my goodness. And so here we have another understanding of what holiness is. Not only is God some uh, eating, literally in Hebrew, fire, fire that eats, fire that consumes, not only God is powerful, as we see in the story of his revelation uh, at the beginning of the Sinai um, chapters relating to Sinai. Remember the smoke, the fire, the earthquakes, the blast of the shofar, so on and so forth. But we also know that God is good. And indeed, God is like fire. Yes, fire is dangerous. And yet, at the same time, Fire is life-giving, yes. And when we see a manifestation of either God's power, his otherness, yes, or we see a manifestation of his goodness, of his blessing, of the way that he tenderly cares for his creation, we are seeing his glory. And now we come to the story uh, not to the story, but to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And uh, Paul's ministry uh, is under attack. His authority is under attack. His legitimacy is under attack from this church. Uh, and in uh, the letter, his second, what we have, his second letter to the church at Corinth, he um, breaks 
off his argument in a way, and he starts talking uh, about the Spirit. And then he begins to talk about Moses. And he talks about how Moses went up to that mountain and encountered the glory of God. And he came down from that mountain and his face was all aglow. His face was shining. And what was the reaction of the people? The reaction of the, of the people of Israel, they were afraid. Uh, there was something scary uh, about this. So Mo Moses did what? Put a veil over his face. Now Paul, and this is, a, this is a, a, those of you who know the entire passage, and I didn't read the entire passage because it raises a lot of questions uh, that cannot be easily dealt with in a 90-minute sermon, okay? <clears throat> really, that shows you how complicated it is, really. Because reading that particular passage in which Paul says a veil is over the eyes of the Israelites and their hearts uh, are hardened, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, has led to a lot of anti-Semitism and has oftentimes been taken uh, out of context. Uh, we sometimes uh, might be tempted to read uh, these verses and forget what Paul says about the law being good and spiritual or forget that even in the passage that we read in Second uh, Corinthians, the law itself is, even the law itself is glorious. So this is something that's put aside but I think what's important in all of this is that when we read these verses, that it's, we pay attention to the fact that Paul is writing uh, something in the present tense. And I think it would behoove us not to think about contemporary Israel too much or the Jewish people, but simply to ask the question, do these verses really apply to us as believers? Because as Gentiles, Paul uh, will say in chapter four that all are blind. Yes, all have been blinded by the God of this world. And so, again, instead of focusing, well, this relates to the Jewish people, I think it'd be much more helpful, much more fruitful to ask the question, are we walking around in a way that's veiled? Are we, is there something we're missing, okay, in our life of faith? Uh, in our relationship with the Lord. Because we have the weakness, I think, especially in Protestant communities, yes, of cheap grace. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. God is blessing me. Um, really, there's not uh, a lot uh, that I need. I have a place of security. And that may be true. But God has so much more for us. What he actually wants for each one of us, as we read in the passages, he wants to reveal, he wants to invite us, yes, to behold his glory. And in the process of beholding that glory, he wants us to be changed. He wants us to be transformed. He wants us to come to a place of maturity, spiritual growth. If you want to be therapeutic about it, wholeness. If you want to be Pentecostal about it, or even biblical, holiness. Yes, that's God's, goal for, <clears throat> that's God's goal for each one of us. But the question is, 
Why do so many of us, yes, run away from that? We either run away from transformation or we really run away from God's trying to behold God's glory, to see Him as He really is. And by the way, when, we, when I say that, as human beings, it's quite limited. Yes, we don't... Uh, if we saw God fully in His holiness and in His glory, I think each one of us would die. But still, there's so much more for us. Why are we afraid, yes, of encountering this kind of holiness? Yeah, that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Because I think for a lot of people, whether it's ancient Israel or those disciples on the mountain, yes, they were afraid. Yes, and I think that many of us have perhaps an unhealthy fear of God or an unhealthy fear that God's going to ask us to do something. Yes, because many of us have a routine or a happy sin or things are going along so-so. Don't rock the boat, God. Yes, don't get too close. I'm glad I'm in, I'm in the lifeboat. I'm glad I have your fire insurance. I'm glad I'm going up there when I die. Yes. So perhaps many are afraid. Maybe it's our fears or anxieties that sometimes get in the way. Yes. A lot of folks are just busy. And uh, a lot of busyness comes out of uh, the need uh, to validate ourselves with others, prove ourselves perhaps to ourselves, or, or um, show others that uh, we're somehow worthy, or to show God that we're somehow worthy. What is also, I think, very um, revealing, if many of us will be honest with ourselves, is that a lot of us are just afraid to die. And because we're, we're afraid to die, we don't want to think about death. And so what do we do? Keep busy, especially if it's ministry. Yes, keep busy, keep busy, keep busy. When actually the transfiguration, transfiguration, what Paul writes here, what happens to Moses on that mountain, actually should bring us comfort and peace and uh, enable us to uh, be free, yes, from the hold of the devil. Yes, which keeps us in fear of death and distorts, seriously distorts the way that each one of us live. I think these stories and these passages uh, would be excellent way for a, a parish or a minister uh, to prepare a congregation to, to face death. Yes, maybe we'll pick that theme up in just a few minutes. Yes, so let me just read, remind you of the text uh, itself. Moses, <clears throat> Moses is glor sees God's glory, but his glory is, tempor is temporary. Yes, and Paul says, you know, the Torah is wonderful, but there's something much more. We're used to um, stepping, maybe stepping on the Torah, or stepping on the law, saying somehow it's, 
It's old. It's past. It doesn't mean anything. I'm not sure Paul is saying that. He's saying it's great, but there's something so much more. There's something so much better. And um, he says to, um, uh, to folks, he says um, that misunderstanding or that lack of having perhaps uh, a full perspective of the glory of God that's found in Jesus. Yes, this is something that, uh, again, that uh, you find amongst Jewish people. But and sorry to repeat myself, but I think you find it amongst many Christians as well. And in many churches as well. We live spiritually in poverty. Yes, uh, we're living on crumbs or fumes uh, when there could be or should be so much more. And so he says the veil, he says, but whoever turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Well, I think that's quite important. Uh, and because on one hand, Paul's going to say, it's the Holy Spirit who does a work in us. And when that Holy Spirit does a work in us and we start to change and we become conformed, okay, to the life uh, of Jesus, to the teaching of Jesus, um, then we, uh, in an increasing way, yes, experience or come to know the glory of God. And so it'd be very easy to say, indeed it is work of the Spirit. Um, in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, that's chapter 1, verse 20, he says, um, and through him uh, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes us both, who makes both us and you stand firm. Yes, so it's the work of the Spirit. But before, before he says, he says, now if you turn to the Lord. So if we want to be practical about this, if we want to, to ask ourselves, well, how do we enter in, <clears throat> excuse me, to this place where we see, yes, God's holiness, where we see this glory, where we are allowing God's work to change us so that we're not our stinky, miserable, cranky selves, so that when we do come, yes, to stand before God on Judgment Day, we've indeed come to a place of maturity, yes, a place where it's easier for us to love people and to be self-giving than it was five years before, 10 years before, 20 years before. I mean, who wants to die miserable, cranky, yes? Uh, without faith, believing that God somehow has <clears throat> abandoned us. Because that's the temptation uh, for everyone, especially believers, uh, at the point of death. So turn to the Lord. What does it mean? I mean, if you certainly, turning to the Lord is repentance. Remember, Paul's a Jew. He may be speaking Greek, but he thinks, and he thinks Hebraically. And to repent or to turn uh, is an Old Testament idea that you're turning away from sin and that you're turning to God. Now, it's in the present tense. Paul's not only talking about a process, but he's talking about a lifestyle. And here he's similar to Jesus because the message of Jesus, 
yes, uh, throughout the Gospels and in the book of Revelation, yes, is repent and keep on repenting. So the place that we begin is repenting. Now, if you doubt the fact that humans can repent, then you ask, which is a debatable theological point, if we can actually repent on our own, then we ask for the gift of repentance. Yes, we ask for that ability to, to turn from God. I think the, the book of Hosea does this uh, really well, if I may, if we may find, I may find that passage. But, um, maybe I, I, but at the end of Hosea, uh, the prophet uh, talks about Israel's, uh, Israel turning, turning back to God. And uh, it reads as follows. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Yes, so here you have turning from sin and turning to the Lord. Again, it's in the present tense. Paul is talking about uh, a process. This is not something we enter into uh, instantly, but still nonetheless, and then if we read further, um, we have um, something very, I think, provocative uh, in uh, this text of uh, Second Corinthians. And it says as follows. It says, and we who with unveiled faces reflect uh, reflect the Lord, all reflect the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his likeness. Yes, we reflect the Lord's glory. But literally the word is contemplate. Yes, if we will contemplate, if we will take the time to consider, yes, just who the Lord is, and we're talking about Jesus in this case, yes, and uh, this might um, really has the flavor of, of, of being before the Lord, yes, and not focusing on him, but not as some abstract idea, which again, uh, it can be very slippery and not very helpful. But applying, you might say, uh, a Jewish understanding. You know, Jewish people, they don't like to talk about, or like, they don't like to describe God uh, in terms of who he is. Instead, they, like, they prefer to describe God the way the Bible does. God is defined by what he does. Yes, we say who is God, but a, tr- a traditional Jewish answer would be who is God? And we could talk about Jesus as being wonderful, savior, the king of kings. Let's talk about, let's focus on what Jesus did and what Jesus has done in our lives or the lives of other people. And as we contemplate that, yes, as we sit before him, actually as we listen to him, you know, so many people, so many of us, I should say, we pray in the most immature way. Yes, we have a laundry list of things we need, and so we're just always telling God, God, you know, uh, I need to pay the rent. God, 
You know, my son needs to get married. Find him a nice wife. God, I don't know if we're going to have enough money to uh, pay the, the, the church electricity bill. God, I need a parking space. It's just, go, here you go. Like, maybe not a laundry list, maybe a shopping list. Yes, I need three kilos of potatoes, two sticks of butter, <clears throat> half a pound of onions. Yes. Contemplation, gazing, looking, about, looking on. In order to do that, you have to be quiet. You can't always be talking. And we have to be listening. So if we gaze upon the Lord, if we listen to him, there becomes this process of transformation. But again, my dear friends, there are things that will get in the way. Yes, our fear our anxiety, our inability to sit quietly, because maybe we always have to fidget and do something or be on the go. That's when transformation happens. And as we listen to the Lord, he will reveal those things that are blocking the process of maturity. And those are the things that we have to move out of the way with his help and the work of the Holy Spirit. So is it me doing it, or is it the Holy Spirit? My dear friends, it's always a partnership. God takes the initiative. God supplies us with the power, yes, but we also have to respond. And it's not always automatic. The book of Ephesians tell us that we can um, quench or we can offend the Holy Spirit and minimize the work of the Spirit in our lives. Yes? And so it is a process. It is a process, God's work and our right response. So how, again, I want to be really practical. Where do we begin with all this? I think all of us need to make sure that the veil is removed and that the God of this world, yes, the God of this world, has not blinded us to what uh, we can have, each one of us can have in Christ. Yes, not only that intimate relationship, but to have a taste, a foretaste uh, of his glory. And so we need to pray that uh, we'll have a vision, yes, of what, what is indeed available to us. And many of us need to pray that we can overcome that fear and many of us need to pray that we'll have that desire. Yes, because without that desire, to really to know the Lord, yes, and not to run, yes, from, his, from who he is, from his character, we'll be always missing something. Yeah. Then finally, I don't think finally, Again, it's a process. I think each one of us, as we take these things, uh, I think as we take these things intentionally, we certainly uh, do come to a place uh, where we can, uh, where we can see, <coughs> certainly see more, um, more clearly. But praying for, praying for the desire, praying for a vision of, of. Uh, of um, 
really a vision of who God is and what he wants for us. And then praying for the grace and the help, again, to remove those roadblocks, those uh, things that trip us up uh, and get in our way uh, would be uh, the place to begin. Now, if we want to be honest with ourselves, oftentimes it's hard for us to pray a prayer like that. So for those of you who have a difficult time, yes, giving up a sin or giving up an emotion that is not, or at least a reaction that is fear, anxiety about the future, yes, a dread of death, whatever it may be, I think we can all pray this prayer, yes? And that this prayer is following, as this follows. It's really simple and it's very effective. God, make me willing to be made willing. Yes, that's where we begin. Make me willing to be made willing. And uh, make me willing, yes, or give me that desire that I don't have, yes, to, to, to see your glory. Yes, to taste that glory, to be transformed. And sometimes, yes, transformation is painful. And God will ask us to discipline ourselves or he'll put us through hard times. But the fruit, yes, of being conformed to him, certainly, or the results will certainly be worth it. Let's end by praying together the colic. Colic is something we should have prayed before the reading of Scripture. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.